production. How can we teach our kids to feel good about themselves so they can feel worthy and loved? There's no better gift in this world for your child than to bestow them with the power to dream big, which is why my new guided meditation for children and early teens has been created to provide your kids with the right tools so they can focus on gratitude and foster ways on how to relax and focus better. You can purchase my new kids' happiness and self-love meditation at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. There's also a link to the meditation in this episode's show notes. Dr Shafali is a clinical psychologist specialising in the integration of Western psychology and Eastern philosophy. Her work focuses on the idea of raising happier, more conscious children. Dr Shafali says... Children aren't ours to possess or own in any way. When we know this in the depths of our soul, we tailor our raising of them to their needs rather than moulding them to fit our needs. In this heartfelt conversation, we discuss how to disrupt unhealthy belief patterns and overcome deeply ingrained fears so parents can find an authentic connection between themselves and their children. We also speak about becoming a more conscious parent and why relinquishing control as a parent is where true peace lies. There's no greater teacher than that parenting journey to expose to you how unhinged you can be, how much pain you still have, how attached you are to outcome and perfection and happiness and success. And therefore you then have the ability to pivot and heal yourself. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Dr. Shafali is the author of many New York Times bestselling books, including Radical Awakening, The Conscious Parent, and her newest book, The Parenting Map. In its essence, this conversation is about breaking free from social expectations and cultural prisons to rediscover your more conscious and authentic self. My hope is that this discussion gives you more insight on how to move beyond the traumas, large and small, that mark each of our lives and guides you towards peace. Dr. Shafali, you have a doctorate in clinical psychology and you bring together both Western psychology and Eastern philosophy. I want to hear a bit about your background and how you grew up in one of my favourite places in the world, which is India. (laughs) Well, it was just a very simple, ordinary childhood, but definitely filled with a lot of connection in my family. I was very lucky and blessed. But I also grew up pretty non-traditionally for Indian standards. My parents were very advanced in terms of the way they looked at the world. They were not tied up to a lot of tradition or uh, very fundamental values. They were very open. And so they raised me with this uh, exposure to alternate diverse realities. So 
when I came to America, I was 21 years old and I pursued a master's in uh, in this fabulous school called the California Institute of Integral Studies, which amalgamates East and West psychology, which became the basis of my entire future after that. And then I did a PhD in clinical psychology, became a mom, began writing books, and really embarked on teaching people how to be more conscious and present in their lives. And can you tell me what was it about this idea of becoming conscious, which I personally love because it changed my life when I even understood what that word meant, but why was it of such interest to you to want to kind of pursue that area? Well, when I became a mom, I was already practicing as a psychologist. I had been meditating since I was in my early 20s. I really thought I was set up to be the perfect mom. Right? I aligned the stars and I was going to be absolutely unflappable and just the Buddha incarnate. And then when my baby came and you know grew into her own essence, I was just out of control, losing my shit, impatient, not even sometimes liking the job or liking her and very upset at my reality and really feeling resentful, martyred. And then I had an epiphany when I realized that the reason I was resisting my present moment was because I was so against the fact that she and it was not living up to my fantasy. I had created this script, this movie, and she was being a really uncooperative actor, going on improvs and just like not following the plan. And that's when it hit me how little I was being present to her mm-hmm. and to her essence and attuning to who she originally authentically was and was so maniacally, obsessively reacting from my egoic agenda. And then I was like, hey, wait a minute, am I the only parent who has this ego? Because no one's talking about it. And then I realized this was the world's best secret and parents were just disguising themselves as if they were selfless and just all present and all giving. But no, then when I began talking to my clients about it, talking to others about it, I realized we all have this gargantuan monster of a parental ego, but the parenting industry, so to speak, the paradigm was pretending as if we didn't. So that's when I realized that the paradigm needed to change and we parents needed to really take accountability for our mass ego delusions. And when we do and when we can, we then truly can connect to who our children are. Mm. What is the difference between conscious parenting and everyday parenting that most people would know? Yep, that's a great question. So in my book, The Parenting Map, it's the how to become a conscious parent. So in here, I talk about the traditional parenting paradigm and the conscious parenting paradigm. The traditional parenting paradigm sets the parent up to believe certain things. What does it set it up to believe? It sets the parent to believe that it has supreme control, ultimate dominance, and the the parent has the mandate to raise, to curate, to create this ultimate, perfect, supersonic human being. So that's the deadly cocktail 
which then leads to parental discipline through fear-mongering, shame, guilt, blame, punishment. And that's the traditional model where the parent feels super as if it needs to be in control at all times and it has a right to be in control and the child is really dictated by that control. And any child who falls out of line absolutely unreservedly needs to be punished and disciplined through fear, shame, blame, or guilt. And that's how we were mostly raised. Mm. In that, what happens is that there's a tremendous burden on parents to get it perfect and to make this perfect kid who needs to be happy all the time, successful all the time, and be a mirror version of the parent's fantasy. So traditional parenting has a lot of flaws, and we can talk about that. But the conscious parenting model really turns that on its head and speaks to the raising of the parent. Mm -hmm. The parent focuses on their growth, their evolution. How are they showing up? Because when the parent shifts the focus off the child and no longer identifies the child as the cause of pain or pleasure, but instead their own inner being as that causal effect, then the entire game changes. And it just pivots everything. The the premise of traditional parenting is control. The premise of conscious parenting is connection. Yes. It's so interesting because we're all wounded in some way and and have some sort of form of trauma. And I know I've interviewed Dr. Gabor Mate on this podcast a number of times and I saw that he wrote kind of a beautiful forward or like a blurb on your new book, The Parenting Map, and his wisdom is profound and he talks a lot about trauma. And I wonder for you, growing up in India, and I know those old school traditions that a lot of different ethnicities have, And then I know that you separated from your husband and did all these things that would seem quite radical for someone of your background. How did you move through those wounds when you started to parent your own daughter? Well, as I moved and traversed the spiritual terrain and began to heal myself, and it's taken decades, and I began to break out of the confines of the conditioning that I had been raised in, you know, to be docile, to be obedient, servile, to put my needs last. And as I began to find my voice more and more and become more authentic, which does come with a forsaking of connection sometimes, Mm. to kind of decide, do I want to stay in relationship with the other or do I need to first focus on my relationship with myself? So I did have to abandon a few relationships on this journey in the quest for my own authentic connection to myself. And I realized that I needed to walk my talk and I needed to embody the principles of being present to myself and celebrating my own needs and my own essence so that I could show up for my child better. But it was difficult. It's difficult when you're raised with such a strict ingraining of conditioning To then break out of it is terrifying, mortifyingly so. What were the spiritual tools that you used whilst you were moving forward in your life and becoming a more conscious person? Well, you know, I've been meditating since I was 21. 
when you learn to meditate and every meditator mm. will attest to this you begin to realize how your thoughts are conditioned and inherited so your thoughts are not necessarily true and you don't therefore have to attach to them and you begin to observe your thoughts more and more you're not perfect and you mess up quite often but you begin to realize that when you do mess up it's because you believed a thought that may not be true mm. so that was the primary tool to give me wisdom to really reframe and repivot my entire way of thinking and being and you know when you meditate you learn to live in the present more and more and you come back to the present even if you depart from it more and more and you realize that life is impermanent which means that our attachments are impermanent mm. which means that any identification with our attachments even our parenting even our relationships are elusive mm. and in essence we are basically just to be connected to the present moment that is the best relationship to have so when we when we practice this over and over again through meditation and mindfulness it then becomes the way you live more and more and then departing from that feels artificial feels un un inauthentic unreal and then we have to make a choice okay because the old way was to be a zombie was to react was to be identified by everything everybody said and did and everything you had and now you're coming to the realization and the awareness that you are empty actually of that your true essence doesn't need those attachments but now you're in a conundrum because this world of form requires you to be here mm. so then you begin to learn how to be here without being so attached and mired in the material existence of life and that gives you liberation yes it's so beautifully said and i totally agree with that when i got into self development work and becoming conscious and meditate every day before that i had my kids and they were really little i have two kids who are now 8 and 10 and i remember i just felt like i reacted to everything they did and i wouldn't think about it before i would raise my voice or get annoyed or something like that and i have not raised my voice to them for years for years i i have no need no need and if for some reason i became unconscious and i did that i go away feeling shocking shocking and i think about it and i dwell in it but doing those practices that you mentioned really became life changing not only for me but for my kids so i feel that the work that you do is so unbelievably important and it's almost like yes do it for yourself but do it for these beautiful kids as well it's just so it's so needed in this world yes 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 so in this book in stage 2 i have three stages but in stage 2 i really give people and parents the tools to do that in a work because parents don't know that they have to do it you know mm. we're so busy we're distracted we're exhausted and we think our goal in parenting is simply to get them to successful adulthood please be happy and be successful so we don't realize that our regulation our modulation our emotional intelligence is actually the linchpin factor that will create that bond 
between us and them. We we we're not told this, right? We don't go to university. We don't need to get a license. So how are we supposed to know mm. that we're even supposed to be conscious? So you know, it is that parent who aspires to be their best self that will one day come to the threshold of my work, and hopefully they'll take it seriously and use it for self-development because there's no greater teacher than that parenting journey mm-hmm. to expose to you how unhinged you can be, mm-hmm. how much pain you still have, mm-hmm. how attached you are to outcome and perfection and happiness and success. And therefore, you then have the ability to pivot and heal yourself. It's so interesting a lot of our kids, they're a mirror for us in the sense of unhealed wounds. And I think a lot of us adults are walking around thinking, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then we see our child in a situation and we go straight back to when we're at school. And when we felt that we were left out or whatever situation it is. And then suddenly we're doing everything we can to make sure that our child doesn't feel like what we felt. And it's not even about the child's problem anymore. It's about not wanting us to relive or see our child go through what we went through. And I'd love you to talk to us a bit about that and what the best way to deal with that is when we feel we are being triggered by a situation that our child might be in because our wounds may not be healed. Yeah, I love that question. You know, many times... Uh, parents will disavow or deny or degrade a part of their children and truly be in the invested belief that it is the child's fault. Yes. When when they come to me for therapy or read my books, they then get exposed to this idea that they are projecting onto their children, right? So the part in their children that they are disavowing is a part in their own life that they have disavowed. And in this book, The Parenting Map, I talk about a technique that people can use called flip the switch. Like, let's flip it around. So if you're seeing it in your child, say your child is the greatest dreamer or the introvert of all times, and you are like, come on, be an extrovert, be more active, be more proactive, and you're getting annoyed with your kid, that is a signal of something within you that is being re-triggered, a wound that is being reactivated. So if you use this, this technique of flip it around, you will then ask yourself, okay, is that shy part or the introvert part or the dreamer part a part of me mm-hmm. that I myself don't accept in myself or a part of my life that I'm ashamed of? And most likely it will be that. Because you you or we have not accepted and integrated different parts of ourselves, then when we see it showing up in the other, it terrifies us, it threatens us, and then we want to quell it, squash it in the other. And there's a section of this book that that speaks to the different types of children we have. I kind of interviewed all my, my people and put these children into clusters. And I created this kind of typography, even though our children defy type. But there's a way to kind of identify, is my child an anxious exploder, a hyperactive explorer, a dreamer recluse, um, overdoer, an overpleaser, easy go breezy kid. Like I, I just kind of laid it out. But what I did with that chapter is that I helped parents not only identify who their kid's essence or what their kid's essence is, but also help the parents reframe that essence as a superpower. Instead of 
transplanting our children to be part of our movie, we need to help them become more of who they are. Mm. But in order to do that, we need to come to them as whole and accepting of our shadow. You know, when we don't accept parts of our shadow, then when they show up in the other, we want to put put it in their shadow. And that's what we end up doing with our children. So owning ourselves and owning who we are and, and allowing and accepting imperfection and allowing limitations will then allow you to accept your child's limitations without needing them to become these super bionic human beings. Yes. I wonder if people might be listening and think this is such a great way of being and parenting, but how do I make sure that my child still achieves things and and doesn't miss out on applying themselves at school or doing those sort of things for them to be able to, I suppose, thrive in what we have put into this kind of box. But from a conscious parenting perspective, what is the best way to allow our kids to thrive and achieve the most that they can in life? Our kids, if they feel connected and feel seen and worthy, they will go to the extent of their own limits. They will do it. You don't have to worry about that. Mm. They will love themselves enough to manifest who it is they are. It's when they are forced and coerced to be someone they're not because they're not celebrated for themselves, then they also can succeed and go to the limits of their imagination, but they will burn out eventually, Mm. right? So you can still, quote unquote, create the perfect kid by pushing them, by coercing them, by manipulating them, by punishing them, by fear-mongering them. You You could get a really successful perfect kid, but there will be an emotional cost. You will also get an emotional cost with it mm. versus through this deep connection and relationship and celebrating and honoring your child and still having boundaries. This is not about not having boundaries. This is not about not having sanity and sensibility, but by first using connection as the cornerstone of your relationship, you will release your children to become their best selves and it will come from them. So there's, it's a nuanced difference, but it is the difference between a sustainable change versus an unsustainable change. Mm. Being authentic is something that you've spoken about for a long period of time, and it just seems to be the theme that's coming up in so many of my podcast episodes, and I think it's so important in literally living your life of greatness, as the podcast called. But one thing that you kind of touched on then, which I really want to point out is if we're coercing our children to get good marks and we pressure them to get the law degree and go on to do all this stuff that maybe they don't really want to do and they might just want to be a musician or an artist or whatever they feel they want in their life but we're like you've got these good grades and this is what you want to do and it brings me to a conversation I had a couple of months ago with Jeffrey Rediger, who's done all this work with spontaneous remissions. And he was saying that when these people don't live authentically, he's seen that a lot of them will become ill when they're older. And it's it's the same with any of us who have lived a life that maybe our husband wanted us to lead, or if you'd gone down the path, living the life that you thought your parents and the culture that you came from that was that was what you were supposed to do, but that's not what your soul wanted you to do. It can be this funny kind of twist that can end up making us sick. And I just think that's really important for parents to hear 
why this work of becoming conscious and allowing our children to be their most authentic self is so important is because it can help them in later life. Absolutely. When we suppress our inner knowing and keep subjugating ourselves to silent oppression, that has a cost. Mm. And it could be death, it could be illness, it could simply be a fading away of your soul, of your spirit. Mm. It could be a diminishing of your light, but there will be a price. So parents have to ask themselves, at what price, at what cost? And parents listening to the conscious parenting model that I propose may scoff at it because it sounds like you have no control. Well, you have control, but not in the traditional way. You have control through the connection. It's connection before control and correction. It's through the connection you have your greatest influence and power. And the mainstay of this method is to keep handing the power back to the kid. But, but adults freak out at this because they're like, well, the reason I became a parent is so I could finally have power and control. <laughs> but that's false power because we can never have power over anyone. We have to teach our children to know themselves. We have to teach our children to have the key to their own knowing, to tap into themselves, to tune into themselves. So many times parents will say to me, I didn't ask my kid if I should give them the advice. They asked me for the advice. And I tell parents, yes, of course, let the children do whatever. But you have to be mindful of why you're giving that advice at that moment. Sometimes we rush in so quickly with our opinions, with our sermons, with our lectures, with our fear-mongering, that we don't see how we misalign with them and we actually abduct them from their own process of discovery. So because we are afraid, you see, we do that because we're jumping in or we don't trust them. Most of the time when I jump in, I have to check back with myself and ask myself, did you do that out of a genuine need that your child had? Like your child was really not going to figure it out ever? Or is it because you just were so terrified of a negative outcome that you wanted to preempt it and salvage the situation? And I'm a fixer parent. So in this book, I also talk about the different kinds of parent you can be and we can touch upon it, but I'm a fixer parent. So I'm always trying to preempt the damage and control the damage before it happens. But in doing that, I found my my flaw is that I rob my child of their own muddle, of their own fumbling, which is so essential to their resilience, right? If they don't fumble, how will they know that they yes, can fumble? Yes, yes. That's so true. I know there have been times where I see one of my children sad about something and it just, your heart breaks, I think, more than theirs. And they're young and they get over it fast. But you're lying awake at night going, oh my God, I feel so bad for them and ruminating over whatever it is. And I'd love to know how we allow our kids to go through life, like you mentioned, fumbling and making their way through rather than controlling it and not lie awake in the middle of the night thinking, oh God, have I done the right thing? And being a parent that wants to control things or control in the sense of ensuring that we think that they no harm is coming their way or we're making sure everything is perfect for them. How, how would we be able to become more conscious to allow them to kind of move through life without us being so controlling? Yeah, we have this misunderstanding about life. We think it should be controlled. We mm. think 
as parents have the expectation that we put on ourselves because of culture that we should control this thing called life. But life is uncontrollable. Life is very risky. Life is strange. It's unpredictable. And so allowing your children, according to age-appropriate exposure, to be exposed to life, don't cuddle them and coddle them so much that they cannot handle life. At the same time, be sensitive and attuned to their developmental level, right? They may not be able to handle a lot of life. So you don't need to take them to the TV to see the terrorist attack somewhere. They don't need it if they if they haven't seen it naturally, and especially if they're young. So you titrate their exposure, but if they are of school age and older and something happens naturally that is risky or unpredictable or scary, that's when we kind of hold a hand side by side and we help them go through it rather than mow it away, right? Because that's what's going to teach them that life and they can co-create their own experience. Life will happen, but they get to co-create that experience of life. And you teach them how to do it without plowing it away. Now, sometimes you may have to rescue them. If they're in the hospital and they're 14 years old and they've got alcohol poisoning, that's not the time to teach them the lesson like, hey, go through life on your own, experience the pain. You may want to go there and help them, right? So this is not about not being supportive and totally an ally, but it's about knowing that that is good they had alcohol poisoning at 14. But once it happens, good it happened, right? We don't mm. want it to happen, but if it happens... Yes. Look for the gold and realize that you can pivot them to see the transformational potential of that experience and use it for the next time. And that's the power of being present, of coming from abundance, not from scarcity, not living in the future or the past and seeing your role as not somebody who needs to clear up the path and never let your kids be afraid or scared, but that you are an ally. You are their support mm. system. And that's your goal. It's not to always be front and center and the leader. As they grow older, you go more and more into backstage and leave the center stage for them. Yes, it's so true. When you were saying that story, it reminded me, my parents were pretty good. They were always there for me, but they were kind of didn't tell me what to do. And like, I never got into doing any bad things because I just was allowed the freedom to, to kind of do whatever. So it wasn't like I went against them. And it's really interesting being brought up that way where you don't have curfews and you're not told that you're not allowed to do certain things because like you said, I made mistakes. Oh, plenty of them. But I learned from those mistakes myself. And I never went and did any of that stuff ever again because I learned, okay, that doesn't work well for me. I felt like crap after I did that and that was it. I didn't have someone saying, you're not allowed to do that and I don't touch this and whatever it is. And it's funny because my parents would laugh if I, if I was to tell them now, you were conscious parents. <laughs> They'd be like, what is that word? But I can attest to myself that it made me a more grounded person and I figured life out for myself rather than having someone push it in my face, which I think a lot of us do as parents because we just think that we're helping our kids when really we're not, we're just restricting them. Beautiful. So we think we're helping them, but we're restricting them. We're actually helping our own intolerance for anxiety. Right? Yes. 
daughter's 20 years old. She's at college and she keeps telling me she doesn't know what she wants to do. And I keep telling her, that's right. That's right. Right. You're not supposed to know. But if I was anxious and I was traditional, I would, that would make me very upset. I, I would stay awake at night. Like, why does my kid not know what they want to do? Why is my kid so irresponsible? Then I would label my kid. Then I would consider her as causing me a struggle and I would be antagonistic and then it would seep into our relationship and then we would be disconnected. Then I would push her. Then I would undermine her. You see how it just starts from a very small yes. kernel within the parent because they're living in fear. Right. Most parenting is fear based, future based parenting. And if parents get one thing out of that, just this asking oneself, am I in the future or am I in the present? Mm -hmm. Am I in abundance or am I in scarcity? Just these two questions. And I try to ask myself that when I get unconscious so that I can realign to a state of joy, abundance and presence in the present moment. Often it's not that bad. Yes. But we project, right? If the kid is staying awake at seven and should have been at bed to bed at six, we are projecting them being tired the next day and then cranky the next day. And then what will I do the next day? And even if they're cranky and irritable the next day, we'll deal with that the next day. Mm. But we are then losing our shit now and creating disconnection now, right? And same with the C grade. We're thinking about their future. Which college will they get into? So we're, we're typically future-based and fear-based. I'd love to hear your opinion on bullying because I know a lot of mothers have written to me about what is the best way to kind of work through this. What is the conscious way of dealing with our child if they are facing bullying at school? Well, it, there's a range of bullying. Some bullying is normal, normal, you know, I'm not yeah, trying to yes, say yes. that it's okay, but it's part of life and being a child. And then some part of it is abusive. So if it's abusive, we should step in, we should get in and intervene and probably separate our children from that unhealthy, toxic environment. If it's in the quote unquote, seems just words and jabs, and I'm not saying that doesn't hurt. I'm just saying then we equip our children with tools. And one of the tools we can practice and we can role play at home is give your children things to say back to defend themselves. Mm. I gave my daughter a simple line to say for anything that felt like bullying to her, I just said, just tell the other kid, it's terribly unsophisticated, but tell the other kid, oh, have you looked in the mirror lately? Anything, yes, anything. If yes. they say you're wearing your shoes, have you looked in the mirror lately? If they say you're so stupid, oh, have you looked in the mirror lately? I gave her something short and jabby and I said, just say it anytime yeah. somebody is, is bullying you. And it worked because... Children are testing other children constantly to see who they can overpower because they learn bullying at home, right? Mm. Technically, not, no kids should bully, but they learn these behaviors. So they're not bad kids. They're just conditioned and they've learned to gain significance through overpowering others. Hello, that is traditional parenting. So give your child role playing, practice it at home. I used to practice snatching her pencil and stealing her shoes and pinching her. I mean, practice, real practice. 
to give her the ability to have the muscle to retort and to defend herself. And then also allow your children to cry and have big feelings mm-hmm. about it and be upset about it. And don't go clean it up. It's okay. It's okay if your kid has uh, 10 bad days at school. It's okay if your kid says, I don't I ever want to go back to school. Every kid at some point, I went through it. I didn't want to go to school many mm-hmm. times in elementary school. and But then I got over it yes. once I processed and integrated my feelings. You said something really interesting. You said a lot of the time, and I believe this to be true, the bullying starts obviously potentially from home, like the child is learning it somewhere. Yes. And I wonder for those parents that have a child that's a bully, and they don't understand what have we done, what are kind of the telltale signs that they might be doing that are allowing their child to feel like it's okay to treat other children in an unkind way? Yeah, and I don't want parents to feel bad if their kid is this bully. Yeah. But they can help the bully to understand that they are hurtful and the way to do it is to create empathy at home. They can, again, role play, let the parent be the bully and for the kid to experience what that feels like and keep building empathy. Some kids have an empathy deficit. It's okay. Not every kid is sensitive. Not every kid comes with this beautiful, open, compassionate heart. Some kids are incredibly self-absorbed and dogmatic and rigid. It's just their personality. And you can keep training that kid to be more empathic. And for the very empathic, sensitive kid, you can keep training them, helping them. And when I say train, I don't mean punishment. I mean exposing them through role-playing, practice, practice, practice. You, quote-unquote, train the empathic kid to have a voice, to stand up to themselves, to go complain to the teacher, to protect themselves. So it's really, really not about contouring the kid. But yes, you do have to give them skills to deal with the real world, right? So remember, I raised my kid without a religion uh, and without really a cultural identity. And I just kind of made her feel like she was just, just a being. She one day came home and said, mom, what do I say to people when they ask me, what are you? What's my, what's my religion? And Even though I raised her without a religion or a strong cultural identity, because I wanted her to believe that she was just part of everyone's experience, I also knew she's part of this quote-unquote real world and will have to have the the retort, the skills to defend herself against someone else's useless attack. So I told her, I said, you can say that you're this and you're this and you're that. And I gave her the script and I said, "Just, just say it and move on. You're just saying it to get that person to get off your back. So if we don't give the tools to our children, like if my kid is a brown girl, right? She has brown skin. She grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. I had to prepare her for kids perhaps talking about her skin or putting her down because she, say, came from India. Part of her heritage is Indian. Maybe people are anti-Hindu. I don't know. Anti-Indian. So I just had to prepare her. And I tried to do it without fear, but with pragmatic reality check. Like, hey, you know, people make fun of you being from India. And she's like, why, mommy? And you just say, because people are unconscious and they don't know. And they may just be silly. They've never been to India. And they may think it's full of just people who don't know how to talk or walk or people have crazy ideas. So just say it's okay. And then... You can just say, no, thank you, but I love India or something like that. But exposing them to life in a gentle, 
but very pragmatically is important, I think. I'd love to know why you wrote The Parenting Map, because you've got obviously a lot of other fabulous books, A Radical Awakening, The Conscious Parent, which are New York Times bestsellers. What was it that made you want to write this book? Yeah, I really wrote this book, The Parenting Map, because it was a very clear call to do it. Parents were confused. Parents were and are frustrated. They want to do better. Every parent wants nothing more than to connect with their children. But they're really confused because no one taught us how to be a good parent, a conscious parent. So people kept asking me, but how, but how, but how? And they wanted the steps. They wanted the journey. And I used to keep saying, go on a journey. And then I realized, you know what? I can write the journey out and they can follow the journey. Mm. So this book is written as a journey. And it may take 20 days to read it because I have practice exercises after every step. And I have 20 steps in three stages. It's meant to be a quest, a journey to to go from the precipice of unconsciousness to the threshold of consciousness. And at the end of this book, I can absolutely guarantee you that every parent will be transformed because it's so practical. I give so many stories, so many examples of my family, my own examples, plus illustrations, clear typologies, clear patterns. I really break it down in as clear, succinct ways as I could. So I really did it because I could see that parents were struggling. And Mm. as much as I would have liked to believe that my other books were all encompassing, (laughs) I realized that they were not giving people the clear directions and the map. That's wonderful. I think there'll be so much for so many people in that book. I want to ask you, you said this wonderful line, I I adore it. You say, we don't own our children. Most parents would be like, what? What do you mean we don't own our children? I'd love you to explain why that is. Well, because they come through us, you know, and Khalil Gibran, the, mm. the poet said so eloquently, because they come through us, we believe they belong to us. But no, they only come through us and they are meant to to shepherd themselves into the world and and spearhead their own future. But we have a misguided belief, again, of our role. We believe, because they come from us, that they belong to us. And we have a right to maraud, invade, and dominate, and lay siege on their authentic, sovereign selves. And this was what was done to us, for the most part, Mm. right? We were treated like puppets, and we had to be very good children who listened to our parents and got the trophies. So we just repeat that, rinse and repeat. So when we wake up to our own sovereign integrity and our own desire to manifest who it is we are, even though that may look unconventional, that may look totally effed up to another human being, that could look uh, derogatory to someone else, as long as we feel that it's aligned and we see how empowering that is for ourselves, then we want to give it to our children. We're like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to decide for you. But now this doesn't mean you don't guide them. This doesn't mean you're not there as a sounding board. And of course, when they're younger, you have way more presence and then you go slowly, slowly backstage. But it does mean that you're always trying to pivot them to find their own answer. No, what do you think? I'll tell you what I think, but you tell me what you think. And to tolerate when your kid thinks in a way that is markedly different from you. I'll ask my daughter, 
hey, don't you think it's a good idea if we both did this together or that you did this? And she'll just tell me straight out, like full sentence, eh, no, no, no. <laughs> no explanation, no permission needed. And I, because I've trained her to be authentic and sovereign, what my part in that is that I have to listen to it as a full sentence. That's it. There's nothing more to do. No, but it doesn't mean that I always capitulate. It means that I, when I do want to exert control, I think to myself, how can I exert the control through the greatest connection, which inevitably will lead us to creating an alliance Mm. through creating negotiation. I have to create buy-in. So when they're young, you have to make them feel like brushing their teeth is amazing. So you have to do it in front of them and, and go, wow, this tastes so great. And the bubbles and the fun and, oh, I look so great. And my, they smell. You have to do all this work to make them go, hey, get out of the way. I want to brush my teeth. Yes. Correct? Look how our kids buy into social media. You know why they buy into social media so fast? Because they see us totally addicted. Yes. And they, yes. they see the dopamine. They feel the dopamine hit and they see it in us. So the minute you put your phone down, your six-year-old will take it because they're like, give me some of that magic. So we have to create the buy-in. And at first, it's a lot of work. And then when they're teenagers, they're tough negotiators, but you can negotiate. So I always negotiated with my kids. She'd come with absurd demands. I want to have 45 people in the house and she's only 15 years old and some may drink and so absolute lunacy, right? So my instinct used to be, are you freaking crazy? What's wrong with you? Do you think I'm a moron, right? My ego wanted to scream, but I used to think strategically. Conscious parenting is strategy. Okay. Do I want a battle? Do I want disconnection? Or do I want connection? Okay. I want connection. Every parent knows that. So now we have to be strategic, which means we have to be conscious and we have to create the buy-in so I would negotiate with her you know what no alcohol and so then she'd be like okay mom I'll give you no alcohol but you have to give me till one o'clock in the morning so I'd be like okay I'll give you till one o'clock in the morning but you have to give me only 20 children she'd be like okay I'll give you 20 children but you don't come out of your room okay (laughs) okay I won't come out of the room but I'll have the video the camera on and she'd be okay you know like that and we would do this and she would know and and she would know that hey, I'm, I'm kind of a pushover, but but she would also know that we have to negotiate. So she would always say, mom, can we talk? You know, I have, I have a proposal. And before you say no, hear me out. And then we would negotiate. But the child knows that the parent is going to listen to them. Yes. Is probably going to agree to a large chunk. And so she was even smarter than me because she would start with the absolute lunacy and then whittle her way down to exactly what she knew I would say yes to and she would want. So she was a master bargainer. But that's okay. Those are good skills to have. But you're doing it together, right? So your kid doesn't want to do homework and they're four years old, but the teacher's given them this absurd amount of homework. Then you have to show up and do it with them Mm. at first or create an incentive. I'll do my work and you do yours. Let's see who finishes faster, right? Make it a game, make it playful, make it joyful. Because really our children are being commanded to from morning to night. Like we've got them on the go button from morning to night and they are exhausted. Yes, They are tired of being controlled. And we've set up this manic schedule where they are just not allowed to be children anymore. Mm. 
How did you raise your daughter with social media? Because that is the number one thing. I'm sure you get a million questions about that. How much time do I allow my kids on iPads or phone or whatever they have? Or do I even allow them to use Instagram, TikTok, and God knows what the other platforms are? I don't want them to miss out because all their friends are on it. How do you as a conscious parent navigate that? I'm of the generation where my kid was 13 or 14 years old, 13, I think, when the iPhone became really a hot thing. Yes. And I I, I feel ashamed to say this, but it's the truth. Because I was the first generation of parents that got this while their kids were still in their teen years, I thought it was an amazing thing. So I was giving candy. Now I realize it was crack cocaine. You know, I didn't know that. So let me tell you, I regret it. And I'm not ashamed to say I regret it because now I help other parents of younger kids to not screw up like my generation parents did. Because I can tell you, the moment she got those social media apps, she kind of disappeared. Mm. I didn't see her for hours. She was more interested in whatever she was scrolling on that app. And I kind of lost my kid. What worked for me was that she was at least 13 or 14 and she had the slightly increased developmental capacity to handle it versus a six-year-old. So I really tell parents no no social media apps and social media screens till they're 13 or 14. Go back to the TV. The TV was benign because the TV (laughs) did not have individualized algorithms, right? The TV was addictive in itself because it was dissociative, but it wasn't addictive to the degree of the this instant dopamine the hits that the social media apps mm. are designed to give children. So the U.S. Surgeon General has said that kids until the age of 13 should not be on social media wow. because we are seeing a, an exponential rise in self-harming behavior, mm. great isolation, unhygienic attitudes, low motivation, a complete lack of connection and suicidality and Mm -hmm. suicidal thoughts, self-harming thoughts in our teens, especially our girls, because this is just not the way we were wired to be. We were wired for connection, community. We're going from the ideal state of community to whittling away to like complete isolation Mm -hmm. and virtual reality. And soon we'll be walking around with helmets, you know, and it's very scary because children need connection and parents are distracted and parents are addicted and it's just not a good scene. Absolutely not good. It's so interesting because, as I mentioned, my kids are eight and ten and I see them, they're not on social media as such. But yeah, they become so addicted that they forget what boredom is. And when I'm like, you're not allowed to go on for the next two days. And then they'll come and they'll be like, I'm so bored, mum. That's great. You know what I used to do when I was a kid and we didn't have this stuff? I used to go outside and get the tennis racket and hit the ball against the wall. I said, but that's how I found joy. Or I used to write or I used to colour in or whatever I decided to do. And I'd be bored sometimes, but I'd use my imagination and I'd just think of things to do. And it's really scary that our children do not know how to be bored. I just think that's very frightening. Yeah, and, and frankly, we adults now... Never have to sit quiet anymore or alone. Yes. The minute, and and we are all guilty of this, the minute we're alone, we pick up the phone. Yes. So we don't know how to be still or quiet or dream or imagine or be creative, write, connect. 
So what, what do we expect from our children? Mm. But so we have to help them, really desperately help them to stay bored. Yes. And to be quiet and to play and to imagine. And it's just not a good scene. And, and our teenagers especially are suffering. And they're dating much less. They're hanging out with their friends much less. So as parents, we have to set the stage. And they, at least the first 13 years needs to be a childhood without this influx of stimulation. Mm. I'd love to know, Dr. Shafali, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? The best, best, best advice that I try to follow is just the simple adage of be here now. Mm. Where are you? Are you here? And that's when I fuck up my life and my mood is when I go into yesterday, I relive yesterday, I imagine tomorrow, and I have to literally spiritually whack myself into the present. Like it's a trance, you know, we've been so conditioned to not be present that we just allow ourselves to venture into the future and imagine and get afraid and go into the past and feel regret and blame and shame. But the present moment is always amazing. Mm -hmm. Really, it is. If you're breathing, even if you're in physical pain, I mean, not a lot of physical pain, but it's kind of amazing because you get to be here in your life. And even if it's painful, you get to experience. And that's the joy of living, right? The, what is the joy of living? It's not to have happy experiences. It's just to experience. Yes. And that's what we're robbing our children of experiencing their experiences. They're just literally becoming passive consumers of data and information and entertainment. So they're not experiencing. They're just constantly being passively entertained. And part of being alive is to experience your reality as it is, even if it's fucked up, but as it is. Mm. And that's my greatest reminder in life to come back to, okay, what's going on now? How can I be here more now? And as I grow older, I can still fuck up, but the rebound is much faster. Mm. What is the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? That my identity is not dependent on another person's opinion of me. Yes. It's so hard to remember that when you are deeply attached to someone's opinion of you and you want their, their greatest regard you become dependent on that. And then when they don't give it to you or you imagine they don't give it to you, you then begin to contort yourself and mutate yourself and become this contortionist to get that and to be seen as good, to be seen as valid. And we all suffer from that disease of, do you see me? I'm so good. Can you please see me? And we don't realize how much of our life is driven by that thirst. I'm a good person. Do you know that? Do you see me? Versus the empowerment we can receive when we go inward and begin to self-endorse, self-validate, and self-govern. Mm. Always realizing how we're getting enslaved by the outside world. How do I look on social media? How does that person see me? How does my community see me? How many prizes can I get? All that enslavement to the external world and then coming back home to the quiet of our ordinary self, that's the most beautiful place. If we can accept our ordinary 
limited, imperfect humanity, that's such a beautiful place to come home to. Mm, Beautiful. I wonder if you have a favorite prayer or saying or mantra. Maybe what I say to myself connected to be here now is wherever I am and whatever this is, there is good. I'm just not seeing it. There is good. Wherever I am, that's exactly where I'm supposed to be. Whatever's happening to me right now, I don't want it to happen perhaps, so I think it shouldn't happen. But guess what? It's happening. Mm. So it's here. So can I find the presence to experience the isness as it is, even if it's really messy, really scary? Can I just be with it Mm. and don't wish it away? And, and that's the way I ground myself or come back into my body. And, and then there's always transformation that happens right after that surrender is, is mm. transformation. What's your greatest hope for society today? That people heal themselves mm. and become more present and conscious. Life is so special, but it's not going to be special if we want to be special. If we're looking to be special, we're going to drive ourselves crazy, thirsty for being special, and then we'll miss the beauty of the ordinary moment. And escaping from external validation and re-entering ourselves is really the path. It's the only way to live, is to detach from the noise and come back to presence. What is a life of greatness to you? Is a life of simplicity, ordinariness and just an embrace of who it is we authentically are. Beautiful. Dr. Shafali, thank you for all the work that you have done. The Parenting Map is an exquisite book. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I greatly appreciated it. I'm so honoured. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. If you like this episode with Dr. Shafali, then you'll love my episode with kids trauma specialist, Dr. Garbal Mate, where we talk about raising children to thrive, the connection between illness and stress, and the effects of trauma on our kids' bodies and minds. Search A Life of Greatness, Garble Mate, wherever you get your podcasts. Listener.